Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 1 to 18. Idolatry in the temple. Abominations in the temple. Verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in the house, the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me. Verse 2. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. Verse 3. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me up and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seed of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was there, like the vision I saw in the valley. Verse 5. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north, so I lifted my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, in the entrance, was this image of jealousy. Verse 6, And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here, to drive me far away from my sanctuary, but you will see greater abominations. Verse 7. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the, in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall. And behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. Verse 10, So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jezaniah the son of Shaphan standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, sorry, verse 12, Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, You will see greater abominations that they commit. Verse 14. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Verse 15. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see greater abominations than this. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their bags to the temple of the Lord and faces toward the east, 
worshipping the sun towards the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this? O son of man, is too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations they commit here? Sorry. Let me pick up at verse 14, 17. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of, the, of Judah to commit the abominations they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Verse 18. Therefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. That's the reading of the, word, uh, the Lord's word. Thank you. Thanks so much, uh, Julia, for uh, that reading. That was fantastic. It's not easy doing these long readings, is it? And we've got some long readings to do in, in the book of Ezekiel. So uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, thanks for everyone for coming and Listen, I just want to say a couple of words about uh, Queen Elizabeth. Um, when my family migrated here to Australia, we had no idea who on earth Queen Elizabeth was. She wasn't terribly important to us as migrants. I grew up in the 60s, but most uh, vast majority of the country came from a British background, and gee, she was revered incredibly by everyone. Uh, her portrait was in every school uh, room. Uh, we sung God Save the Queen at assembly, at uh, all of the sporting events and big occasions. We always sung... Uh, that song, so uh, we did get to know her a little bit. But you know, when I be became a Christian, and after a while, I, I uh, realized that uh, Queen Elizabeth was uh, also a, a person of great faith. Uh, that really was a great encouragement to me because you know, she's a really big, high profile figure in the world, and there's a lot of other high profile figures who are not very good, and yet she was uh, faithful in following the Lord all of her life. So she was a big contrast to others, I found. And, uh, and so I just thank God for her example uh, for me in uh, my life. As uh, Devon mentioned, this uh, passage today, it's our second sermon of seven in Ezekiel. It's all about tragedy, and uh, uh, because of that, the, uh, the rest of the pastors thought that I'd be the best person to uh, give this message. They obviously consider me an expert. It's always great to be an expert in areas, isn't it? And... I'm obviously an expert in uh, tragedy, so thanks very much uh, for that. And uh, that'll give you great confidence too about this sermon, won't it? It's all about the glory of God uh, walking out on the nation of Israel in Jerusalem there. God walking out on his people. Why does God walk out? That's what we're going to look at today. And I hope you're in a life group. The life group's a really great place because we've actually got a Bible study. This is it uh, that you can grab uh, in the Bible study groups. We're going to be studying uh, the book of Ezekiel together. So why not join uh, one of those uh, groups as well? Uh, in this uh, Bible study, there's also a reading guide uh, for each of the uh, sermons uh, so that you can read um, all of the chapters that we're going to actually be preaching. I'm preaching on actually four chapters today. It's chapters 8 to 11. Uh, we only uh, had time to read chapter 18. Let us pray. 
Lord Jesus, uh, you said that um, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they know me. They'll listen to my voice and they will be one flock. You're the great shepherd. Help us as we seek to listen to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Pastor Devon gave a great introduction uh, to the book of Ezekiel uh, last week uh, where um, just to place Ezekiel in uh, biblical history, I've just got this uh, diagram there. If you look at the, one of the central um, um, paths there which is called the prophesied kingdom. Now this is the period that we are in right now in uh, biblical history and so this is where the two kingdoms of Israel split. You had the northern kingdom of Israel uh, centred in Samaria uh, they were overthrown by the uh, Assyrians in 722 BC and uh, that was it, kaput, ten tribes, all gone. Uh, we had the southern kingdom who was uh, left. This consisted of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Uh, they were centred in Jerusalem. Uh, along comes Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the great conqueror. He conquers uh, Jerusalem and he exiles the people back to Babylon in two separate uh, stages. The first one was in 597 BC when they took about 10,000 people uh, captive and back to Babylon. This was the elite, you know, the well-educated and it included Ezekiel. Ezekiel was 25 years of age at that time and he'd been trained to become a priest. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar leaves a puppet uh, king in charge, uh, Zedekiah. Of, uh, of Jerusalem and uh, the surrounds. He uh, gets a bit frustrated, obviously, with uh, being under the control of Nebuchadnezzar, so he hops over and uh, seeks to get a bit of help from Egypt, uh, rebels against the Babylonians, and he loses badly. And so the second exile happens in 586 BC, 11 years later, and the whole city, the whole temple, is left in ruins. The vast majority of people are exiled are back to Babylon. Only the poorest of the poor were left in the land. Now these early chapters of Ezekiel are centred right between these two exiles. So last week Pastor Devon spoke about the first vision in chapters 1 to 3 that God gave to Ezekiel. All about God's glory being revealed. And now here in chapters 8 to 11, this is actually about, uh, actually it's right on 14 months later. Ezekiel, he's sitting in his mud hut on the uh, Cheba River uh, with the elders of Judah uh, sitting there with him, 1,500 kilometres uh, travelling to Jerusalem. And they want to know what is going on, what's happening in Jerusalem. There's no internet, there's uh, nothing like that. They want to know what's happening back in our homeland. And as Pastor Devon mentioned uh, last week, they're hoping that God will send them back. They want to get back to Jerusalem. And then we have the Spirit of God, the same Spirit as chapter 1, grabs Ezekiel and takes him on this wonderful second vision. Now, a vision, a vision is like a dream, except you're awake. You know, it's, it's an out-of-body experience. Uh, his body remains there in the hut with the elders uh, still being there around him, but God takes him by the Spirit, grabs him and takes him to the temple of Jerusalem. 
These visions, of course, they're symbolic. Uh, they're not actually, um, he's not seen actual uh, events happening. It's like a supernatural uh, movie, but with great meaning behind it. You know, uh, my wife Gail and I, occasionally we have an argument. And, you know, most of the time with husbands and wives when they have arguments, you know, both of them are a little bit right, a little bit wrong. But on this one occasion, I knew I was absolutely right. She was 100% wrong. I knew it. And she just couldn't see it. <laughs> Seriously, I was absolutely right and I knew it. We stopped arguing and, you know, I went to be on my own and I was just, I was talking to myself. I do that sometimes. Uh, sometimes I don't have anyone better to talk to, so I just was talking to myself, <laughs> knowing that I was right. And then a memory came to my mind and I remembered something that I hadn't remembered before and then I knew I was wrong. And this voice came into my head, the voice of God, I know it was. And he said to me, do you want me to judge you the same way that you judged Gail? Judgment. Judgment. We like to give it, but we don't like to get it. And that's what these four chapters here are all about. It's about God's judgment on God's people. You know, we like to hear about God's wonderful love and grace and mercy for us. I mean, that is so wonderful to hear about all the time. That's what, you know, we uh, jig ourselves to, but we don't like hearing about judgment. That's not particularly popular. But you see here, in the book of Ezekiel, Judgment comes before mercy. Judgment, God's judgment, comes before mercy. And it's going to help us to really appreciate. You know, when you understand God's judgment, it'll help us to really appreciate God's mercy so much more. To Israel and to you and me as well. Now we begin here in chapter 8. And chapter 8 is all about God's glory being totally and completely offended by uh, the people there at Jerusalem. Ezekiel, he's transported to the temple precinct here in Jerusalem and God shows him why God is not happy with Israel. Why God is not happy with the people in the city. And he shows him these four very ghastly scenes uh, that you heard read to you uh, by Julia. Uh, this is, uh, the next slide is a diagram there. It's a diagram of the um, temple and it shows where these uh, took place. And the first one is this image of jealousy. You know, it's a carved image of a god. Uh, most likely it's Queen Asherah, who's the mother of Baal. Uh, she's a Canaanite god of fertility. Uh, King Manasseh actually put an Asherah uh, pole uh, inside the temple uh, shortly before, a, a bit before the exile, and uh, King Josiah, he took it out. He got rid of it, removed it. Jealousy. Jealousy is the proper anger 
that, for example, a wife has when her husband commits adultery against her time and time again and he won't stop. And that's exactly how God feels here because of the adultery, the idol worship of his people. He feels totally betrayed by them. And it gets worse. Verses uh, 7 to 13, he's taken to the entrance of the court of the temple and there he sees these images of unclean animals on the wall. He's got the 70 elders. These are the leaders of uh, Israel. They're, they're basically political leaders and they're worshipping these images. Uh, most likely they're of Egyptian animal gods. Each one of them in his own little booth, uh, giving incense, uh, praying, his own spirituality, trying to please these gods. He wants to find favour. They want him to find favour. They want to get help from Egypt. Because Egypt might save us. Forget about God. They're giving up on him. And actually, if you look at uh, chapter 17 of Ezekiel, you'll see there that people were talking about how they wanted Egypt to help them. Desperate. Believing that Yahweh has you know, left us. He's gone. Instead of uh, seeking to repent themselves, um, as every prophet that had been sent to them had told them to do, they tried anything else but Yahweh. But that's not all. Then we see these uh, women, the women of Jerusalem, weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz was a, a mystical god of Babylon. They've moved to Babylon now. It's said that he lived for 36,000 years and then he died. And each year at the time of spring, he rises again, which brings the rains. It's all about the crops. And these women are giving all their emotional energy uh, to this myth, to this um, mythical God. Yeah, it's interesting how yeah, a crisis will turn you to anything, even myths and fantasies. Finally, and then worse of all, in verses 16 to 18, um, right at the entrance of the temple, uh, virtually looking at the Holy of Holies, you've got these 25 men, almost certainly priests, and they've got their backs to the temple. They've got their backs to God, and they're facing uh, the east where the sun is, and they're bowing down and worshipping the sun with their backs to God. Something they were specifically told not to do in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 19. And this is the priest doing this, the very priest of God doing it at the very entrance of the temple, worshipping the creation rather than the creator. What could be worse? They've totally lost confidence in God. Idols have been... A way of life for them for some time, I think. And idols is what gives you... Idols, you know, it's something that you give yourself to rather than God. And we here in the West, we here in the Western church, you know, we don't bow down to gods made of stone or wood. You know, our idolatry is much more sophisticated than that. We're sophisticated people after all. Uh, much of our adultery is all in our thinking, isn't it? 
You know, we put ourselves at the centre, the centre of life. We have our own little world that we live in, like those 70 elders, each with his own little spirituality. And he's at the centre of his own spirituality. We, we worship things, you know, we worship money and we worship our careers and we worship beauty and sex and comfort and, and all kinds of stuff, you know, family, fame. Even the people of God. That's what's happening in Jerusalem. And what does the church look like when that happens? The church becomes a place, you know, where, where sin just becomes normal. Where God's name seems pretty harmless. Nobody fears. Scripture? That's relative. Materialism? No problem at all. We, we will accept that. We love it, actually. Where feeling good about yourself is more important than truth. As Richard Niebuhr put it, when you have a Christian community like that, and you've just got this gospel that's got a God without wrath, bringing people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through Christ without a cross. And you know, we think we're different from those rotten idol worshippers, those Israelites in Jerusalem, we're not like them, are we? Actually, I think we're just like them. Have you put your faith in Jesus and him alone? Do you trust him for your very life? No matter what? Do we count suffering for Jesus as something that's good? I don't mean just, you know, getting your feelings hurt. I mean really suffering for Jesus. Paying an actual price, like uh, the Christians in China do. You know, in China, the government, you know, you can't do anything without their permission. So what happens? Christians get thrown into jail. What do they do? They preach the gospel to the very police taking them to prison. They pray with the other inmates. That's what they do. They count it a privilege to be thrown into jail. Do you? I certainly don't. You see, the mark of the church is the cross of Jesus. Not the dollar. Not having an easy life. Not avoiding suffering at every cost. We are just so soft here in the West. We're so soft. We love comfort. We love an easy life. We, 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 that's all we want. I mean, we're more interested in our next holiday than, than telling people about Jesus, than obeying Jesus in our own lives. How much money do you give for God's work? How much money do you give to the poor? Actually, I should say, how much of God's money that he gives to you do you keep 
for yourself. You know, I'll bet you that half the people in this room, including me, could give away half of the wealth that we have and we would be just as comfortable as we are now. Half. Do you think that's radical to do that? <laughs> Jesus doesn't seem to think so because he told the rich young ruler to give it all and then follow him. What we call you know, radical discipleship, the Chinese call normal discipleship. <laughs> you know what normal discipleship is? It's doing what Jesus says. Do you know what the problem is with uh, giving away half your wealth? You probably have to depend on God more. And you know, we'd rather depend on our money than on God. We think we're nothing like those Israelites in Jerusalem. But we're just like them. We're just, you know, worshipping the worldly things that we have in our day today. Uh, listen, I know I've um, been a little bit hard here, <laughs> um, but listen, this is an important topic. And, you know, I'd just like to encourage you, why don't you talk with uh, someone about it over lunch? You know, this is a great topic to talk about. Um, and, you know, let me know what you think about it. I would love to hear from you what you think about us and the way that we live our lives compared to those people there in Jerusalem. Okay, let me move on. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm just going to go briefly over the next two chapters, 9 and 10. Now, chapter 9 is where God's glory is defended. Uh, God does this by destroying the sinful people and uh, those who were worshipping um, idols there in Jerusalem. Verse 6 says it's very harsh. It really is. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. God's protection is still there on those people who are grieving for the sin of their community, grieving about their own sin and repenting. You see, God's judgment is real. It's serious. How serious do we take God's judgment? Well, it's an incredible vision here, I can tell you. And um, this vision, actually, of judgment uh, actually happens there in 586 BC. God uses uh, the Babylonian army to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And that's what he was seeing here in uh, this vision uh, just uh, a few years before. That's God's judgment on his people, not other people, on God's people. And then when you move on to chapter 10, we see here the glory of God departs. It leaves Jerusalem in four separate stages. Ezekiel just watches as God literally walks out there on Jerusalem. The final stage happens actually in chapter 
11, where God's glory leaves Jerusalem altogether. It goes uh, towards, um, excuse me, towards the east, where uh, is the Mount of Olives. And um, um, who else is in the east? The northeast is Babylon, where the exiles are. God is moving to them. And then we have uh, chapter 11. This is all about the glory of God suspended, but with hope, with hope. In the first 13 verses, again, we've got uh, God's judgment. Um, Here he is at the east gate. There's these uh, 25 leaders of Israel there. They're probably public officials, uh, you know, people in charge of things, including uh, Pelatai, and uh, he's a prince of the people. And they think that judgment has already come. I mean, we've had the first exile. You've got these 10,000 people. They've been booted out, exiled to Babylon. We're the guys who've remained. We're the goody-goodies. And by the way, we've got all this land. You know, these 10,000 people have left. They've left their houses. They've left their land. Mate, we're rich. We're doing well. We're safe. We're prosperous. We're good. We haven't done anything wrong. God must really love us. They're so comfortable. They don't even realise that they need to repent. And then we've got, uh, in verse 13 there, uh, Pelatide dies. Judgment falls even on them. And Ezekiel says, is this the end of Israel? But God says in verses 17 to 18, I'll gather you from the people and assemble you out of the uh, countries where you've been scattered and I'll give you the land of Israel. And when they come, they'll remove all its detestable things and all its abominations. And in this big reversal, God says the exiles, they're the ones who are going to return to Jerusalem. They're the ones who are going to inherit the land. They're going to get rid of all the idols. They're going to bring back the true worship of God. And those in Jerusalem, they've been rejected by God. Now in the second half of chapter 11, verses 14 to 21, we find God's hope in this judgment. Verses 19 to 20, it says... I'll give them one heart and I'll put a new spirit in them. I'll remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. So they'll walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they'll be my people and I will be their God. What wonderful words, eh? Now it's really looking forward here to Jesus. As all the Old Testament does. I'll give them one heart. I'll put a new spirit in them. You know, we can't do it ourselves. I can't do it myself. Only God can change a person's heart. And we need the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And God does that through faith in Jesus as a result of Jesus' death on the cross for us. You know, God doesn't live in buildings made of stone or concrete for that matter. He lives in the hearts of his people. You know, it's not good enough to just be part of a church that that follows God. I need to be 
a person myself who is following God? That's the question that I've got to answer. Now, have I turned my back on all the idols in my life? Am I totally trusting in Jesus Christ for me, for my salvation? Him and him only. You know, have you had this kind of divine heart transplant in your life? Well, let me tell you, I've had a transplant. It wasn't a heart, actually. It was a kidney. And boy, does it make a difference in your life. I know it's working because of the results of this transplant. And it totally changed uh, my life. Your, your body feels different. Uh, you think different. You feel different. You act different. But, you know, some of the people that um, I got to know uh, while I was on dialysis, they also had a, a kidney transplant. But not everybody makes full use of it. Even though they've got this uh, new second-hand kidney in them, some of them, they're just too scared to do much. They don't want to use it to its max because they're, they're scared they're going to lose it. And some, you know, some people, you know, you get into really lazy habits when you're on dialysis. I mean, you've got, you've got, so, uh, you've got no energy whatsoever. You get into really bad habits in, in your life. And what, you, what they did was they just brought those bad habits into having a transplant. The transplant didn't change their life like it was supposed to. They just didn't realise what they could do now that they had this transplant. And they didn't even try it, seems. You know, what does a new heart from God, what does it mean to us? J.C. Uh, Rowell put it like this. It's not a little bit of cleansing and purifying, a little bit of turning over a new leaf and putting on a new outside. It's bringing something altogether new, planting a new nature, a new being, a new uh, principle, a new mind. This alone and nothing less will ever meet the needs of a person's soul. See, a heart of stone serves God out of duty. Obeys God because of what I get out of it, you know. I want forgiveness, I want to get um, you know, God's blessing, I want to get to heaven. Hey, but a new heart, a new heart serves God because, because I want to. It serves God because I love God. I want to be with him. I want to be around God. Uh, I find God beautiful, just in and of himself. You just want to be near him all the time. It just is a delight to you to be with God. You know, in those spare moments of your life where you have nothing else to bring your mind to, you know, what's the first thing that comes into your mind. Who comes into your mind first? What comes into your mind first? You know, that is what's on your heart. That's what's on your heart. Have you received a new heart from Jesus? Have you put your faith and trust in him 
and him alone? Have you accepted his death on the cross for yourself? Well, if you have not done that yet, if you're not sure, why don't you come and speak with myself or one of the other pastors or maybe a Christian friend that you have. And we would love to talk to you and show you how you can do that in your own life. I want to ask you, is everybody in your life group, have they got a new heart? Why don't you ask them? That'd be a good thing to do, wouldn't it? And uh, just a reminder, you know, earlier we talked about the Alpha Course. I mean, that's a great place to go for people to come to understand and to um, put their faith in Jesus. It starts this very Tuesday. It's on Zoom. So why not come along if you'd like to know more about Jesus? Why not come along if, if you are a Christian yourself and maybe you can invite a friend to come with you? Why not come along and be a helper? Why not get involved? With, with reaching out to other people and telling them this fantastic news. Get out of your comfort zone. Serve God. A long life is not necessarily a great life. What you do with the time that God has given you, that's what really matters. What are you doing? What are you doing? Let me uh, close in prayer. Jesus said that uh, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he's been born again. And we want to thank you, Lord Jesus, that it's only through your death and your resurrection that we can be born again. We pray that there will be some people uh, who will be born again this very morning here with us. And um, we want to pray, Lord, that um, they would receive from you a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that will be fully open to you. Uh, Lord, we pray that you'll uh, have mercy on us as a, a nation, uh, that, Lord, your blessing would be on the nation of Australia, uh, that many more men and women and children would come to trust and to proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, and help us, Lord, to be part of that work. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.